Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Yevamot, daf Kuf Yud Gimel, page 113. Before we begin, I'm going to remind everybody to please sign up to register already for Asiyum. If you have thoughts, and I'm sure you have thoughts on this Masachet and would like to share them, we'd love to hear from you. I think everybody would love to hear from everybody. Um, and uh, you know the drill, right? I think. Um, you know, you can get the link on our Facebook page or eventually on our WhatsApp or just message us and we'll send it to you, uh, namely for registration for the Zoom, for the CM, which is um, Sunday, July 10th, 5 p.m. Israel time, 10 a.m. East Coast, Eastern Seaboard time. Okay, um, I have a piece of halacha that leads into a story, which I always find works well. Um, the Gemara is concerned about the fact that a, a chereshet, a deaf mute woman, uh, does not get a ketubah, right? A ketubah is technically a kind, kind of a guarantor, a gar- an object or a sum of money that's supposed to, you know, that returns or reverts to the woman or is given to the woman, I suppose. It's not really hers going into the marriage um, in the event of divorce or, or even death, but it's a little more complicated. In any case, the deaf mute woman does not, does apparently is not entitled to this. And the Gemara wants to know why that is. How do we know that a deaf mute woman does not have a ketubah, does not have this either sum of money or a valuable object, whatever it is. So what happens? We have a breita that says, if you have it, we're talking about men here, if you have a deaf mute or you have somebody who's cognitively impaired and they marry people who are, as our term has been, halakhically competent, in this case they're marrying halakhically competent women, then even if eventually the deaf mute person would somehow acquire or reacquire his actual senses, right, or the cognitively impaired person, you know, retained his cognition, then the wives, right, would still not be able to claim a ketubah from them. Um, the meaning they could give them, I suppose, in the event of divorce. You know, you can always make that kind of gift, but there's no requirement for them to provide a ketubah. Um, the Gemara goes on. Ratsulikayman Yeshlehem Ketubah. However, if those men wanted to indeed, you know, maintain these women, you know, through the value of the ketubah, after these changes took place, then they would have a ketubah from that point on. It sounds like, you know, the kind of thing where the terms would be specified from a certain date, um, as opposed to, as I said, a specific object or something like that, which was the original origins of ketubah, which we'll talk about at some later date. Um, yeah, what happens? So what happens if, you have, if it's the man who is halakhically competent? Who marries somebody who is impaired either in hearing or in cognition? So let's say he decided to write out a, a contract and he writes it out to say 100 um, dinar, right? Then the, it's still valid, right? Meaning, because the idea is that his goal here, it's as if he was to harm his own property. Now, we're all going to get riled up over the idea. We're going to talk about property in the context of property in the context of marriage, but the idea here is that this person decided willingly to give away his property 
he's allowed to do that, right? It's not saying that the woman is equal to that amount of, you know, the value of the property. It's simply that he he's allowed to diminish his his holdings in the event that he wants to. So the Gemara says, well, what that means is he wanted to do it. So that's that implies that if he didn't want to do it, then she doesn't get a ketubah. And then that logic means, you know, because otherwise, and this seems to be an actual concern of the Gemara, if the man were required to pay ketubah under the, in the case of, you know, again, in the case of divorce, then he might not go ahead with such a marriage because this woman is, as we say, impaired either because of, you know, loss of hearing or in the case of loss of cognition. So to some extent, then not requiring a ketubah functions as protection for the woman in marriage, which is kind of an irony as compared to usually we would think that the ketubah itself is to protect the woman in marriage. So then the Gemara goes on, and this is the story that I, of course, wanted to get to. So what happened? Oh, uh, I'm sorry. I skipped a piece. Oof. I don't recall ever doing that. So then what we can say is that if you have a halachically competent woman who marries a cheresh, right, then let the chaz- let Chazal establish a ketubah for her because because the fact that he doesn't, like he, he, she, let me say it more clearly, she's not the chereshet, right? She's not the one who we're trying to encourage the man to marry. So theoretically, then she should be entitled to that ketubah, um, you know, because maybe she wouldn't marry if she weren't to get a ketubah, right? That's the EMK, that she wouldn't marry. I think this is the first time, Yerdin, is this the first time that we've seen this phrase? Because it's a, an important halachic principle. Um, namely, more than a man wants to get married, a woman wants to get married. So we don't, which here is used as an explanation as to why it is that Chazal did not establish a ketubah from the cheresh man to give to the woman because she wants, the presumption here is that she wants to get married anyway because women want to get married more so even though the person she's marrying has an impairment, namely he cannot hear, it should not be de- a deterrent to her to prevent her from going to marriage to the extent that, oh, she needs a ketubah to protect her in the event of divorce. Yeah, um, I would, I just to jump in, yeah, this is the first time we've seen this, but I think this theme or questions of who needs marriage, who needs to be protected in marriage is something that we're going to continue to see explored in uh, Seder you know, especially when we get to Ketubot and Kedushin. This is going to be a lucky concept that will be referred to often. Right. And we should be clear, we'll say this again, I'm sure, you know, this is a, it's a given. The Gemara takes this point that women want to get married more than men do as a given. And, and that's it. Like there's, maybe there'll be some point that there's a discussion of it, but I don't recall any. Again, I haven't been through Shas yet. That's the, that's what we're doing now. So um, it is, we can quibble about it. I'm sure we can all imagine, we all know of cases of women who would rather not be married, certainly not to that guy. So, but the Gemara takes it as a given that as, in again, not to anybody, but in as a principle uh, that women want to get married more. Okay, now I'm on to my story. So there's a deaf mute man, a Cheresh, who was in the neighborhood of Rav Malkiu. I don't, we don't really know Rav Malkiu until this point. 
Um, and the fact is, the he's not very prominent in the Gemara, and very little is known about him. He's mentioned a, a handful of times. Um, okay, so this is not a real who's who. Ramalgu, then, what did he do? So Ramalgu marries this Cheresh to a woman who we can presume to be a Pikachat, and he writes a 400 dinar um, ketubah, right? And that's going to be from the property of this Cheresh. Amra Rava, Man Chakim, Kerav Malkyu, Rabahu. So Rava says, who is as wise as Rav Malkyu? He was such a great man, because what did he do? He figured out a way to provide her with a marriage contract, even though the Cheresh was not obligated to do so. Kasavar, Ilu Milo's Zavnina lay. Rav Melchior's rationale was if the if the Cheresh wants a Shifcha, if he wants a woman to attend to him, the Gemara's language here is it's not indelicate, you know, it's pretty clear though what he's talking what it's talking about, Lisham uh, Show, then then Milo's Zavnina lay. Wouldn't we make sure he had such a person? So how much more so in this case when we're talking about actually actually they're going to get married, right? Is it, and so then they have a whole different dynamic as of a relationship. And the Gemara says it here, because she's functioning both as a wife and also she'll fill that role. And this is a little bit of a more crass kind of statement as the Shifcha would have done. Um, the point being, though, the Rav Malkyu's rationale is provide her with a ketubah, meaning she's more than a shifcha she's you know she's going to be his partner at the very least she should be able to get the ketubah out of it um despite the fact that he's a cherish and not obligated so 400 dinar as a as a as a backdrop right she only gets that money in the event of divorce or as i say in case certain cases of death but um you know it's certainly recognizing the that i want to say that like Chazal are recognizing the gap or the lack in this particular halacha about about those who are deaf mute and who are obviously you know cognitively fine because hello they're getting married meaning they're having all kinds of relationship but yet there's a uh you know an impediment to all of the details of the normal marriage you know setup falling on them they're not obligated but yet and here's Ramalku kind of like managing to make sure to take care of what the halacha itself did not take care of. And that's where Rava says, ah, that is greatness. He did it easily. He did it quietly. And and he also kind of, you know, fixed where the halacha was lacking. Well, I, I think what's interesting here is, you know, it shows how people made real practical case where somebody comes up with an ingenious solution to solve an actual problem. Yeah, and also, Rav Malkyu was of the generation before Rava, or two generations before, whatever, right? So that Rava can look back and say, look at that greatness, as opposed to, right, there's a recognition amongst Chazal who's got the broader shoulders to be able to make this kind of decree or statement. It's not really a decree. It's a particular case that he has adjusted. Right. And I do think part of this statement he's saying also, Rav, is like, not everyone could have done what he did. But because he did it, we can rely on it. Right. Exactly. 
All right, I'm going to jump down now to something that's on Amudbet. I'm a Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri. So remember, Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri in the Mishnah wanted to understand what the reason was why a husband of a woman who becomes a cherish, who becomes a deaf mute, is allowed to divorce her. But the inverse, the husband becomes a deaf mute, he's not allowed to divorce his wife. So Ibailuhu, they raised a question about this, uh, about Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri. Ish pishita so they want to understand this. Is it obvious? Is the case more obvious that the with the case of a deaf mute man that he can't divorce his wife? And therefore, what Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri was trying to raise a discussion about was the case about the woman, why she's allowed to be divorced, or is it the inverse? It's obvious why one can divorce the deaf mute woman, but what he was raising the question about was why the deaf mute man is not allowed to divorce his wife. So the Gemara goes on to say, Toshma, come and come and hear, right? Mitzika Amrule. This is what the rabbi said to Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri's question. So Anne, this to me is a little bit kind of like what you were saying about the, that there's an assumption that women want to get married. Here there's an assumption that a divorced man, right, is not similar to a divorced woman. A woman can be divorced basically with her will or against her will. And we know that this is still true today. But a man is only divorced with his will. Today, today we've got that says that a woman cannot be divorced against her will. Well, correct. But I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that you know, uh, even, well, okay, I, let's, sorry, let me clarify that if a woman wants a divorce, that doesn't always happen for her. So right. I, I just oh, got to plug, sure plug the Aguna issue. That's all. That's true. So she you. can't, right. she can't. But you know what, the... Anne, why don't you just give a little bit of background about the Rabbeinu Gershom thing? Because I didn't think. Um, sure. Um, Rabbeinu Gershom lived like, uh, he's the predecessor of Rashi. So we're talking over a thousand years ago. And he made a cherem. He had three basic rules that we all know about. One is he, you know, said you can't divorce a woman against her will. The other is, another one is that you couldn't have more than one wife, which the Ashkenazim accepted and the Sephardim did not accept. And the other is that you can't read other people's mail, which is, you know, a basic understanding of privacy, whatever. Um, and then, as I recall, the decree was to last for a thousand years. And then... The presumption is, and I don't know really what this entails, is that it was, you know, essentially renewed, um, which I feel needs further investigation to understand exactly how, you know, what that means. Right. For a little our bit beyond the scope of today's DAP, but right. Yeah. But Rabbeinu Gershom is important just in terms of the context of that. And we'll probably talk about him a little bit more when we get to Gittin anyways and condition when some of these issues about polygamy and how divorce works gets discussed and we think a little bit more about how those things work actually in, you know, halacha lamasa, practical halacha today. Anyhow, so the point here is, is that what they're saying is, is that women can get divorced against their will or not against their will. Men can only get divorced uh, with, you know, being willing. So from this, mamina ish So we learn from this that the difficulty that Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri was trying to talk about, his dilemma was, was about the deaf mute man, not the woman, why is he not allowed to get divorced if he wants to get divorced? Adaraba, right? But the Gemara rejects this and says, wait, on the contrary, Mita Gamrule, right? 
Maybe the, ra- the rabbis actually said this to him. This woman, too, has a similar status. And so, therefore, we can learn from this that actually the question that he had was about the woman. Ella, so in other words, sorry. So basically, they can prove it either way. They can't, still can't sort of figure out what was really bothering Rabbi Yochanan Ben-Nuri. So then it says, Ella, rather, Rabbi Yochanan Ben-Nuri, Ram Ka'amar Lehu. Rabbi Yochanan Ben-Nuri spoke to the rabbis according to their statement. That's what it literally means. In other words, he made a statement so he could argue their opinion. And this is what he was trying to say. Lididi, according to my opinion, ki ish la mati megarish, right? Just as a deaf mute man cannot divorce his wife, isha nami lo migrasha, so too a deaf mute woman cannot be divorced. Right, but according to your opinion, what's the difference between the case of a deaf mute, mute woman and the case of a deaf mute man? So they said to him, They said, no, they're not similar because the man who divorces his wife is not similar to the woman who is divorced. So basically what Rabbi Yochanan Ben-Nuri was really trying to say is, is that he thinks those cases should really be equitable. The same way that a deaf-mute man is not allowed to divorce his wife, right? A deaf-mute woman cannot be divorced. In other words, in any of these cases, it's sort of an acquired chayrish. There's just in a category where divorce is just... Sort of, how do we understand the chayrish, right? Like that maybe the chayrish does have some understanding and that What's interesting is, is that they're not totally sure, is it that there's some mental incompetence or is it just a person that they can't actually communicate with? And so I think what Rabbi Yochanan Ben-Nuri is basically saying, we don't know what the answer is, so we're just not going to allow divorce at all. And the Chachamim basically answers and say, no, divorce when it comes to men and divorce when it comes to women are just two totally different scenarios and we're not allowed to compare them. And they're going to have different halacha based on that. So, you know, I think it's part of what's, I think, being explored on this staff is, is what assumptions do we make in order to understand the halacha, right? What assumptions do we make? Do we assume women, you know, the assumption that women want to be married, right? The assumption of men only get divorced willingly, women can be divorced willingly or unwillingly. Um, And so there's sort of like all of these, different assumptions that have to take place here um, in order to really tease out the halacha, which I find to be sort of a different way of learning halacha. Like before when we've seen halacha, particularly let's say in Seder Moed, <laughs> it's based on psukim, it's based on a tradition. They quote other mishnas, you know, there, there's something else, you know, there's a misora that goes on here. Here they're sort of introducing, you know, a set of logical rules that say, well, like, this is what we know to be true. And therefore the halacha is based on that truth. And does that make sense? What, what I'm saying there? I think so. Yeah. I think that we'll have ample opportunity to explore it further though. Right. Cause I think as we go through Masachat Nash, you know, Seder Nashim, more of that is going to be apparent. Chazal is going to make a series of assumptions, sort of like how society works. What do men think? What do women think? What's their relationship like? And then that's going to impact a lot of these laws around marriage and divorce. 
And of course, then the question is, you know, because their chazal is what they say true, is what they say true for their time, is what they say true universal, you know, with some exceptions in the modern era, right? These are, once you've got exceptions that are then built into the way the halachic system works, you know, it opens a whole can of worms, which I, that's why I say, like, we'll have plenty of time to explore it. Right. And again, I just, you know, pay attention to that machlokas between, uh, you know, Rabbi Elazar, where they really talk about, you know, uh, right, whether or not the, the mind of the deaf mute is considered to be weak. And I think to, I, I didn't want to read it. It was a pretty lengthy passage. I didn't read want to read the whole thing. I wanted to do this piece. But, you know, it's getting into that question of what do you do with somebody who can't communicate? And it kind of acknowledges that they know something more may be going on than what we're capable of understanding. And I find that conversation to be fascinating because in today's world with tablets, you know, all the technology that we have, sign language, you know, we actually know much better that people with some of these disabilities actually can communicate and are intellectually on the same level as people who do have, who, who don't have a disability of speech. But according to the Gemara, they weren't exactly sure how to figure that out, but at least they entertained the possibility of it. That's our daft discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this stuff. Thank you to Rebbe Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.